Our second reading is from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian Christians, the fifth chapter. And our reading begins at verse 12. We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and have charge of you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, beloved, to admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This is my second weekend preaching on 1 Thessalonians. If you're visiting for the first time today, if you're a member who wasn't able to be in worship last weekend, I would encourage you to go to our website and listen to the first sermon. It's there as an audio file. It's important to know what prompted Paul to write this letter to the church in Thessalonica and what those Christians so long ago were experiencing that Paul could bear no longer, namely their suffering, the persecution that they were experiencing. So that sermon's available, and I would encourage you to go to the website and listen to it as you're able this week. So in this reading today, uh, Paul is laying out for us some markers. He's describing some features, some traits, if you will, of any authentic Christian community. And you heard him talking about a love and peace, and how in Christian community there is to be this admonishment and this ministry of encouragement that we are to be patient with one another. And Christians are always to be a people of prayer. And he says that in all circumstances, no matter what's going on around us, we should rejoice and give thanks. Did you also hear him saying some things about loving and respecting your leaders? I'm going to get to that in a moment. But speaking of pastors and those entrusted with leadership in congregations, I want to tell you a story about that light bulb. And you've heard the jokes about how many engineers it takes to change a light bulb, how many politicians, how many managers. Well, I came across one having to do with pastors. There were a bunch of clergymen and women at a ecumenical retreat, and they were asked the question, how many people does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answers were interesting. The Presbyterian pastor said, none. If God wants the bulb screwed in, he is sovereign and will do it himself without human effort. The charismatic pastor said, none. The bulb doesn't need to be changed. We should pray for it to be healed. The Pentecostal pastor said, none. We simply need to cast out the bulb from the demon of darkness. The fundamentalist pastor stated, none. We shouldn't even enter the room because we need to separate ourselves from the darkness. The Wesleyan minister said, we don't need anybody to change the bulb. If we just show the bulb its need, it already possesses the power to screw itself in. The non-denominational pastor said, none, because we don't want to make any bulb feel unwanted or uncomfortable. (laughs) 
The Baptist preacher replied, none, because if we allow physical contact between a person and the bulb, it might lead to dancing. (laughs) And the Lutheran pastor said, well, before we have anybody think about changing the bulb, we need to appoint a task force to see why the bulb burned out so quickly. And we need to find out why in the world did last year's church council approve the purchase voucher for defective bulbs in the first place? And that's a joke, but it is more accurate than some of you may want to think. In Christian community, obedient, authentic, Christ-centered community. The mission of the church is first and foremost. Now that mission we receive from Jesus, Matthew 28. He gives this great co-mission that belongs to all God's people, not just clergy. We share the mission, the co-mission, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded. Now that mission, which is clearly stated in Scripture from the mouth of Christ himself, can faithfully be paraphrased in many ways. We paraphrase it in our mission. The reason Faith Lutheran exists, first and foremost, is to lead people to Christ. And the incorporating them into the life of the church and equipping one another for effective Christian living, that's all part of learning to be a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, the Master. And when a congregation keeps first things first, when people all together, clergy and laity alike, set their minds to this work that we share in Christ, in that kind of community, Christian love can flourish. It can multiply. It has a chance to grow. But conversely, when the mission of any congregation or a church body is moved from first place to second place or any other place, or when that mission is forgotten altogether, then you can count on, you can predict all kinds of problems and disagreements and strife arising. Because when there's not a sense of common purpose, then personal tastes and individual agendas will always collide. And when this happens to a congregation, the results are predictable. Some of you have lived through this. Numbers go down. People start leaving. And the focus becomes more and more internal instead of external, looking to be a people in mission for the sake of the world for which Christ died. Instead of service to others as Christ people, loving the neighbor as Christ first loved us, in those congregations where mission is forsaken, Survival becomes all-important. A survival mode emerges as people and resources dwindle. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've lived it. You know how sad, you know how heart-wrenching, and how frustrating this can be. But when a church, large or small, seeks the mind of Christ, and the will of the Lord supersedes personal agendas... Well, there, love has a chance. And there, you will find the peace of the Lord that surpasses all human understanding. And in that Christian community, 
Paul tells us to respect and love those who serve as leaders. Why? Because we've gone to seminary? Because we have a title of reverend? No. Pastors are to be worthy of respect and love because of the work they do. And this is so critical, it is so important for authentic Christian community to thrive. These words of Paul remind all pastors, young and old, that ministry was never intended to be a popularity contest because it ain't about us. Never has been. It's about Jesus. I remember as a youth, we had an awesome youth group, and I remember a mother of one of those kids, and we called it Luther League. We were talking about how cool we thought our pastor was, how awesome we thought our pastor was. And that mom said to us all, but it's not about the pastor, it's about Jesus. And what are you learning about Christ when he preaches? See, there's a difference. If pastors are to be loved and respected, as Paul suggests, then let it be because we are seeking to be faithful to the mind of Christ, and that is evident in the work we do. Don't let us be loved because people think, a majority of people think we're really cool or because we have a winsome personality. There are already enough congregations in the world today, and I will be bold to say there are enough here in Albuquerque that are built around the personality of the pastor instead of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Pastors come, pastors go. Since this congregation was founded in 1955, ten pastors have already come and gone. And someday, on down the road, every single pastor on staff right now will be replaced. We will be gone. I hope that's by retirement, before death, but whatever. All the pastors on staff now will someday not be on staff. And my prayer is that faith will continue to grow and prosper long after every pastor is gone, myself included. These words of Paul remind us Let's just be real. You don't have to like a pastor's hairstyle or facial hair. Uh, I remember my third or fourth year here. I interviewed, and I was still in the Army Reserve. I was wearing a crew cut. You can't have a goatee in the Army, right? And then once I was um, finished with that service as a reserve chaplain, I grew my goatee. And I had people in the congregation telling me that they liked me better when I was clean-shaven. Really, you liked me better? Yes. I can't stand to look at you (laughs) with that dirty face. And what does Kirsten think about it? I said, well, Kirsten likes it. She does not. She's a pastor's daughter. How could she like facial hair? I said, go ask Kirsten. And there I got justification. You see, Kirsten thinks that this helps. (laughs) And if Kirsten likes it, it's going to stay. And if you don't like it, deal with it. You don't have to like the pastor's clothing. Some of my associate pastors like to wear jeans. Some wear coats and ties. You don't have to like her jewelry or the way she does her hair. A pastor may prefer stir-fried tofu. I have no reason to understand why. Or they might like elk tenderloins on the grill. All these things will vary from person to person and pastor to pastor. But we are called to love one another 
for the sake of Christ and the work we do in his name. And the reverse is true. Pastors don't have to like everything about every person in the congregation. That's really good news for me. (laughs) I don't have to like everything about you. Do you like everything about me? But I'm called to love you. Because Christ died for you, sinner that you are, and Christ died for me, sinner that I am. And we are to operate on the basis of this holy love. And it's not a feeling. Christian love is not a feeling. It's a force. It's a power. It's a reality. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You want to define Christian love? Look to the cross, to the man of sorrows, who felt completely forsaken as he was carrying the burden of your sin and mine on his shoulders as he hung there dying. And in Christian community where love and peace dwell, there will be this ministry of encouragement and we will admonish one another. In recent years, there has been a seismic shift in the church, primarily in Western Europe and North America. And this shift, this movement, has been a movement away from orthodox, long-standing biblical teaching and a move toward prevailing values and standards of the dominant culture. And this shift has moved the church away from a community in which all God's people are called to the same standard of accountability at the foot of the cross. Calling anything a sin today is now considered to be old-fashioned, self-righteous, hateful, and judgmental. And under a new, higher banner of inclusiveness, no one's decisions, no one's actions should dare to be called inappropriate or displeasing to God unless, of course, you commit the one sin that still remains, and that is the sin of daring to believe that some things are actually contrary to God's will, that some things actually cause our Father in heaven to weep over his children. In my 30-plus years of ministry, I have witnessed this change firsthand. Many Christian denominations are living out this seismic shift, this earthquake, which I would call a church quake. And it's of their own doing. They brought it about. They wanted it. They went running to embrace it, believing that if we just simply allow the culture around us to shape the church's teaching and the church's standards, then finally the culture that really hasn't known what to do with the church from the beginning would befriend God's people. Uh, Christian leaders would be applauded for their enlightenment. And all those folks who'd been staying away from sanctuaries on Sunday morning would flock in droves, filling the pews in record numbers. To use today's language, it was believed that hipsters would finally see the light and start coming to church if stodgy old pastors and stale congregations would finally learn to be hip. It hasn't turned out that way, not even remotely. The church bodies and congregations that went so quickly to embrace culture and let culture define what the mission of the church should be are now in a more rapid decline than ever before. Unchurched people are not running to embrace this cooler, more hip Christian faith. 
Some say this is ironic. I don't think there's any irony. Those churches have actually pushed themselves to the margin. They, they created this life on the periphery. It's of their own doing, their own design. But as we, standing on God's word, still call sin, sin, you've got your sin and I've got mine, we all didn't remember something, that when we are called to admonish, admonishment is, is never intended in God's word to be some scathing, hateful condemnation. It's not letting people have it or bringing the hammer down. Admonishment was never intended in Christ's church to publicly humiliate someone or, or bring shame upon a brother or sister. Admonishment is a loving, compassionate ministry of guidance, and it's correction, yes, that's done with kindness and humility and love. It's an expression of encouragement. Some Christians wrongly think that admonishment belongs in the church to be sure, but it's always for that person, for him, for her, not for me. And Oscar Wilde, uh, not a Christian theologian or a defender of the faith in anybody's mind, Oscar Wilde, whose life was broken in so many ways, got it right when he said, all of us are in the gutter together. That's just his way of speaking a Christian truth. All of us have dirt. Not one of us is completely clean. It's just that some of our sins are more apparent and readily discernible than others. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for you and me. You know what that makes us. And in this community, we are to have this ministry of prayer and we are to be patient. Some of you know that were it not for God's long-suffering patience, you'd be in deep trouble. Some of us over years, maybe even decades, have come to realize and finally appreciate the grace of God as the Lord has patiently waited for us to come home, to turn from our sin, doing it our way, and seeking God's mercy and doing it His way. And in that process comes transformation, brokenness to wholeness and healing, moving from darkness to light. And as God is patient and slow to anger with every single one of us, we are called to be just as patient and slow to anger with one another. A person can accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, some of you have lived that beautiful transformation, your conversion. You can name the year, the month, the day, the hour, the second. Some of us can't point to that moment because we've known Jesus as long as we've known our moms and dads. I'm one of those people. I was raised in a home where Jesus was Lord. I've known Jesus all my life, but here's the thing. Jesus knew me when I didn't even know how to speak his name. Before I was given a name and a birth certificate, Jesus was on the cross dying for me. But whether a person grows up in a Christian home or has a conversion experience, we need to recognize that it takes a lifetime of learning to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Coming to faith can be instantaneous, but coming to discipleship 
was never intended to be instantaneous. Jesus even said so in Matthew 28. You baptize them, well, now you've got to teach them. They've got to go to school. And we're in this school together. That takes time. It takes learning. It doesn't happen overnight. And we need to be patient with one another in the process. Last week, I had the privilege of officiating at the memorial service for one of the few members here at Faith that I have to look up to, literally. Jerry Esch was about six foot eight, Nebraskan, got a ticket to college on a basketball scholarship. It was my honor to stand in this pulpit and preach the gospel of life at his memorial service. During the reception afterwards in Fellowship Hall, I met a lot of people I'd never seen before, folks he'd worked with at Sandia, folks he knew uh, because of their common uh, passion for riding motorcycles on the big, beautiful, open highways of New Mexico. One gentleman came up to me. I had never met him before. He had a lot of questions. And then his questions turned to disclosure. Started talking about all the ways that he'd messed up his life his three marriages that ended in divorce, and his adult children that don't even want to talk to him these days. And with tears, he said, Pastor, you really believe this God could love someone like me? Now, I told him, God doesn't necessarily like all those things you just told me about. God doesn't necessarily like some of the things I've done in my life. But I assured him that God's love is more than sufficient. And he asked me if I'd pray for him. And I said, of course. And he thanked me and went to turn away. And I said, where are you going? You asked me to pray for you. Like, right here, right now? Yeah. There's so many people. (laughs) So we stepped through the double doors from Fellowship Hall to the back of the sanctuary. And as my tears began flowing, I prayed for this brother that felt so broken, so ashamed, so worthless. And if you remember anything from today's sermon, just remember this. The ministry of prayer belongs to all God's people. It is not the exclusive ministry of clergy. I've gone to so many hospital beds where the phone call has come in. My loved one, my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister is not going to last much longer. The doctors and nurses have told us to come say goodbye. And when I show up in that room, someone will say, oh... It's good that you're here. We can finally pray. Well, what if I got stuck in traffic? What if I'd been T-boned at an intersection? The ministry of prayer belongs to all of us. And I want to challenge you that when someone at work, at school, a relative, a church member, tells you about a difficulty, a disappointment, a hardship, something that makes them worry, and you say, I'll pray for you. Well, first of all, really do it. Just, just don't say it. That's what Christians like. I'll pray for that. Really? I hope so. And maybe even be bold to pray for that person right then and there in the sweet, strong name of Jesus. This is a ministry that is yours if you are a baptized Christian. And then Paul says, we are to rejoice and give thanks. Hey, let's remember what was going on in the life of those Thessalonian Christians. Imprisonment. Beatings, torture, martyrdom. Paul had already been exiled for his preaching. He couldn't stand it any longer, and he sent Timothy to check on these people because he knew they were suffering so greatly. And he says, rejoice at all times. Give thanks. That seems counterintuitive, if not downright crazy. 
Rejoice when the political and religious authorities are rounding us up like criminals, whom are being separated from our loved ones by imprisonment, whom are being put to death. Rejoice when something horrible has just taken place in my life, when I'm sick, when the lab results come in and it's cancer. Rejoice when one of my friends betrays me. Rejoice when my family is a mess. Rejoice when the company I've worked for and helped to build up announces it's downsizing by 20% and I'm told to clean out my desk. We're not told to rejoice because of such things. Nor are we told to pretend that those kinds of things make us happy and giddy. But God tells us through a servant, Paul, to rejoice in the knowledge that God doesn't go running away when we find ourselves in times of trouble. God is still God, especially when things are tough. Our joy in the Lord comes from knowing that he is with us, he loves us and cares for us, not just when everything is going so great and life is sweet, but when life is sour and relationships are strained and life seems so unfair. God is still God. And we give thanks in the circumstances, not necessarily for the particulars of that circumstance. A woman in our congregation, I want to close with this real parable, recently told me that this is the first church she's ever gone to where she could dare to be real. She's been going to church her whole life, but she said in other congregations, when she found herself hurting or in trouble, people primarily sisters in Christ in Bible study, told her that she was sinning. That her sadness was a sin because of her lack of faith. And she told me, I'm just reporting the ministry that goes on here, that she's finally found authentic Christian community where she doesn't have to be afraid of not only sharing her joys but revealing her sorrow where she doesn't have to pretend that her life is perfect and that everything is great all the time. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't feel comfortable in a church where I had to pretend that everything in my life is just great all the time either. I don't think I'd belong there. In a different letter, not to the church in Thessalonica, but to the church in Corinth, Paul says, and it's one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one member of the body of Christ is honored, all rejoice. When you get a promotion, when your son or daughter or grandchild makes the dean's list, when you finally get to build that second home in northern New Mexico, your dream home, I get to celebrate that with you. I get to share in your joy. But that same 26th verse says, when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer together. Now, that doesn't mean that I know what it's like to attend the funeral of my spouse, to outlive one of my children, or to find myself unemployed. I don't know those realities. But I am invited, and you are invited in Christ, to enter into, as the Spirit gives us, the joy and the sorrow the rejoicing and the suffering of those who belong to the same Heavenly Father. You know that expression when you hear that someone's going through a terrible time? Christians say it all the time. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Think about that. Does that mean that God's grace is not present in the situation that has brought suffering and sadness and despair to a brother or sister? Really? Are they God-forsaken? Are they graceless? 
What Christians should say when a brother or sister suffers is this, there, to him, to her, because of God's grace, I go to pray, to weep, to simply be present. That's the kind of congregation I hope Faithland Lutheran is, and that's the kind of ministry I hope that all of us can offer one to another for the sake of Christ, who died for us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.